Welcome to the Hanover Valley Podcast, a ministry of Hanover Valley Presbyterian Church. We are located at 133 Carlisle Street in downtown Hanover, Pennsylvania. Check out the rest of our website at hanovervalley.org. Thank you for listening. We're drawing another uh, of our lessons, exploring a little bit more of God's Word in uh, Judges. This time of life, very similar to our own. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, whenever you do what's right in your own eyes, it always leads to mess, uh, as it were. And uh, the wonderful thing about the book of Judges is it not only tells us the truth about humanity, that we're always drawn to doing what's right in our own eyes at a cultural level and trusting no one but myself and what I'm able to do. And yet the, the wonderful grace about the book of Judges is that God always intervenes, always comes, always is willing to care for us in the midst of our struggle. So turn, if you will, we're going to read just a section out of the life of Gideon and see how there is good news for those who struggle with faith, those who struggle with uh, doubt and fear and skepticism. So look, if you will, we're going to start reading uh, in chapter 6, verse 36, um, but the the real work of Gideon starts at the very beginning of chapter 6, and then we'll read down a little bit into verse 7 just to get a sense of how things are, are going here to get the setting. So, if you will, uh, Judges, chapter 6, 36. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew on it only, and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next morning. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. Early in the morning, Jerobbaal, which is Gideon, and all the men camping at the spring of Herod, the camp of Midian was to the north of them in the valley near the, near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into your hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce now that the people... Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take, take them down to the water, and I will sift them out for you there. If I, say, if I say, This one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord said, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who, who uh, kneel down to drink. 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that have lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. This is God's word. The grass withers, 
and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would work in our lives today. Lord, your, your word is powerful. Uh, what you've done in our lives by your grace is transformative. Father, I pray that what you are doing, I pray that, that your words will have deep impact into our hearts. I pray that, that your spirit will, will challenge us and transform us from the inside out. Lead us to yourself, Father, and lift up our hearts. Lord, we desperately need you in our lives. Convince us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There is a, uh, there's a commercial. I'm not sure if it's still on. There's a commercial I was rather fond of. It's kind of humorous. I'm not sure. To be honest, I know the, I know what, I, I remember the commercial I'm going to describe to you, but I don't remember what it was selling me, which is very odd. That, of course, maybe that's the, that's the, it was probably an insurance company at some point. You'll, you'll tell me what they sold because the, com, the commercial is very funny. There's a, there's a man, the way, that, the way the commercial goes is there's a man in a kitchen, in a small kitchen, and he's about to make some sort of, some sort of uh, spaghetti sauce. He's making uh, dinner. Uh, presumably for his wife to come home, and so he's there. He's chopping up the onions, and he's in uh, on on the uh, on the counter. And and unbeknownst to us at this moment, there's a you know they've got a cat walking around a little bit, and then and the cat jumps on the the counter, spilling the marinara that he's been making onto the floor, the bowl of it onto the floor, and then jumps in it and gets the marinara on the cat. And so the man, in the midst of all of this melee of struggle, he picks up the cat out of the marinara to clean up the cat by the scruff like this, and he, but he had not put down the knife from the chopping of the onions, and so he picks up the marinara, and there's marinara all on the floor and all on the cat, and he, he picks up the cat, and he's sort of standing here, knife in hand, cat in hand, marinara covered, and that's when his wife walks in and sees this very thing. Now, I don't know what they're selling. Maybe it's an insurance, and maybe, but the point, the point of it was is not everything is as it appears. And the reason I tell you that story is because there's a little bit of that going on. There's a little bit of that mentality going on in this passage, um, and, that, and that one of the things that God is using to communicate to us about about our unbelief, about our doubts, about our skepticism. Our skepticism, he tells us in, in this passage and in many others, but our skepticism of him, our skepticism about life, our, our unbelief, our sense of, of doubt that rises up uh, is rooted in, in our misconception about about God, an inaccurate understanding of God, that what we think we see, we don't see, an inaccurate understanding of God, an inaccurate understanding of, of, of the circumstances, and an inaccurate understanding of the world, of ourselves. So where does our skepticism, where does our sense of unbelief flow from? Where, where is it, what is it rooted in? Well, it's rooted in uh, an inaccurate view of our circumstances. Gideon is in a situation with God's people where they have been oppressed 
where they have been enslaved by the Midianites. So much so that they would that they will come in and they steal their crops. They come in and oppress them through war. And they were more numerous. They were they were like locusts. The scriptures tell us that the Midianites overwhelm the people of God, but like like locusts overwhelm a field of grain. That's how that's how oppressive this experience was that they were in. And the Israelites are in this situation feeling like God has abandoned them. As a matter of fact, Gideon, as it were, if you, if you have a passage, you jump back to it. When God comes to Gideon, he says, I'm, I'm going to use you to save my people from, the, from being enslaved by the Midianites. He's, and Gideon's response is, but sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they, when they said, did not the Lord bring us out from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hands of the, of the Midianites. What caused Gideon's sense of skepticism was that he had an inaccurate understanding of the circumstances. His sense of circumstances in this moment is, God has abandoned us. That our life is hard because God has abandoned us. That our, our difficulty, that we've been surrounded by the Midianites, we've been placed in a time of affliction, that we're in a time of hardship, and hardship must mean God's not here. Affliction must mean that God is not being gracious to us. When at the beginning of this passage, the author of Judges makes it very clear that the, that the Israelites fell into sin and God is the one who allowed them, who, who led them down the path of affliction. That affliction in this instance, affliction doesn't always mean this. Suffering doesn't always mean this. But, it, but in this instance, it means that God is giving them his grace, not withholding it from them. Affliction the Apostle Paul says, uh, when, he, when he talks about uh, the famous passage uh, where he talks about being afflicted with the thorn in his flesh, we don't know what that thorn was. We don't know if it's physical or mental, emotional, something maybe spiritual, that, there, that Paul felt like there was this thorn, this, this pain, this affliction, this affliction, this suffering, and he prayed that God would remove it. Three times he prayed that God would remove it, and God said no. And what Paul realized was that God's grace wasn't in removing it. God's grace was the thorn. God's grace was the affliction. God's presence, God's work in his life was more evident in the, in the, in the difficulty than in the removal of the difficulty. That what was worse for Paul, what was worse for the Israelites, what's worse for you and me is being allowed to go down a path of darkness, down a path of sin, down a path of rebellion and brokenness. That what's worse for us is to go down that path, no matter how easy or wonderful it is, than to go through a time of affliction and suffering. And that affliction and suffering and pain and hardship and difficulty are what lead us back to an understanding of Christ. It's not evidence of God's abandonment. It's God's evidence of his interaction with us. Skepticism is rooted in a false understanding of our circumstances. And there are legitimate questions. There are legitimate questions that Gideon asks. It seems like you've left, God. 
It seems like you aren't answering prayers. It seems like you're not saving. It seems like you're distant. It feels very dry to me right now. I don't feel connected. These are legitimate questions, and God is not dismissive of those questions. He's just saying, let's look accurately at our circumstances, that what you think you see in circumstances isn't what you see. It's as if we're living in our lives, and we're... And, and we, and, and, and we're uh, we see our lives the way the wife saw the husband when she opened up the door, standing with a cat that looks bloody and a husband that's holding a knife. And now, what did you do to my cat? And we see our lives and our circumstances. We view our circumstances much the same as she was viewing that situation. And we look at our lives and we see affliction and we see suffering and we see blood everywhere. What? what appears to be blood everywhere, and a knife in someone's hand. And God is saying, you, you don't know what you're seeing. You don't, you don't have an accurate understanding of what's going on. Take a better look at it. Let's explore it together. Let's understand circumstances together. God, in, God interacts with Gideon to the point where he wants him to understand the roots of his skepticism and fear and doubt is in his, in, uh, his inaccurate understanding of his circumstances. But it's also an, an inaccurate, uh, our skepticism, any skepticism is rooted in an inaccurate view of God. What were Gideon's questions? God, where's the big payoff? Where are you? You're nowhere to be found. We expect salvation like you, like you did it in the, in the time of Egypt, that you let us, led God's people out of Egyptian captivity. Where's the big picture? Where's the big salvation? Where's the God from on high that's come, that comes down with burning chariots? We're looking for God in the big when more often than not, throughout the pages of Scripture, God tells Gideon, I'm not in the whirlwind. I'm in the small voice. We're looking for God in these, um, these immense vistas of grandness when God says, I'm more in the small, I'm more in the, in, the, uh, in the leftovers. We look for him in the big when he more often prefers to be in the small, which is part of why Gideon is being led down this path. He takes him down the road of, of you know, I've got, you've got 32,000 men to go up against this battle. Now, against the Midianites, that still would have been an, in, an inadequate amount of men to go to war with a Midianite force that was probably in the hundreds of thousands. So they had 32,000, as the numbers suggest in the passage, and God says, you've got too many for me to do the job I want to do. Too many? Wait a minute, God. <laughs> And so he says, to, he says, here's how I want to divide. Right off the top, tell anybody that's afraid to go to war, that's, that's a little concerned about it for their family or for themselves, tell whoever wants to leave out of fear, they can leave. And I'm sure when Gideon was told that, he's thinking, well, these are mighty warriors. I'm sure, they, I'm sure we're not going to lose that many. Lost two-thirds of what he had because they were afraid. Lost two-thirds down to 10,000, and God's, and then he goes, turns back to God and goes, okay, we're ready to go, right? 10,000. God says, no, too many. So he takes him down to the river, and he says, here's the next way I'm going to divide this, uh, divide this up. Um, 
the guys, the guys who kneel down and scoop the water out of their hands and lap it out of their hands, as it were, and the way I learned it as a Sunday school teacher, as a Sunday school kid, is that they kept their warrior, their, they kept their, their, their spear and their, and their weapons in one hand while scooping it and then looking around the horizon that they were proving themselves to be better warriors. That's, that's, a, that's, that's a joke, no. There's, God, was just, God was just making a difference between the way one guy drinks and another guy drinks. If, it was, if God was trying to find the 300 best warriors, that's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage was this was a ragtag group of 300 guys that God didn't, he wasn't concerned about how great they were because they weren't going to be needed as warriors. He was going to give the battle into their hands. And so he says, the ones that scoop the water and lip, lap it out of their hands, keep them. The ones that kneel down and lap the water right out of the, right out of the river just like a dog would, send them home. And we're down to 300. And then he says, divide them up. 300 is too many. Divide them into three groups of 100. He's constantly showing his grace in the smaller, the smaller, the smaller. God shows more of his power, shows more of his ability in confounding our sense of how small he can get and still be this amazing God. He does not show himself so much in his greatness as he does in his humility. Thus, the essence of the cross, the essence of the Advent, the, the coming of Jesus, which, by the way, first Sunday of Advent's in three weeks, just so you know. Um, in case Christmas sk skips by us. The essence of the Advent, God shows up in the most unlikely place. In the womb of a virgin teenager who was impoverished and had no standing in their culture. And God says, that's what I'm going to use. That's where I'm going to be. I am so great that you can see my greatness in my humility. And our doubts, our skepticism, flows from not understanding that God works in the low road more than he works in the high, powerful road. We're expecting to see him. We're expecting him to show up in these grand, overt ways, but he shows up in grand, overt ways through the smallness, through that which is rejected, through the marginalized, through the, through the broken. And when we see that, our fears and our and our, and our doubts go away. But it's also not only is our doubt and skepticism rooted in, rooted in our faulty view of circumstances and our inaccurate view of God, but our inaccurate view of ourselves. There's a section in, the, in chapter 6 where when, uh, when God is approaching Gideon to do this job, he says, he says uh, to the, that uh, Gideon says, But Lord... How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least of my family. In other words, I'm a loser. I'm the least of the least. I've got nothing to offer. I'm, I have no abilities. And so uh, Gideon's 
skepticisms, Gideon's fear, Gideon's doubts are rooted in his false understanding of himself because the Lord had come to Gideon and says to him in verse, in verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. God says, you're a mighty warrior. I am with you. You're mine. I'm going to make you into something you can't even see out of yourself. And the longer the longer you try to look at yourself and find, the longer you try to find a sense of belief through what you can see in yourself, the more you're going to be skeptical. The only way you're going to be, that, you're, that your fears are going to be overcome, the only way your skepticism is going to be overcome is to see yourself through the lens of my own impression of you. See yourself through my eyes, not through your own eyes. When you see circumstances through your own eyes, doubt and fear. When you see me through your own eyes, doubt and fear. When you see yourself through your own eyes, skepticism and, and, and unease. But when you see circumstances, see me, see yourself through my eyes, through what I see, through what I'm, through, through, through the accurate, real understanding of life, skepticism fades away. So if this is where our, our, if our skepticism is rooted in a faulty view of circumstances, God and myself, how does, how does God treat our skepticism? What's his uh, response to our skepticism? Well, the encouraging thing to me in this passage and in many others when God's dealing with doubt is that his first response to our skepticism is patience. Graciously, graciously, he is patient with us. Rather than being, rather than being, uh, uh, when we challenge God with our skepticism, when we come to Him with our with our lack of faith, when He says, "I want you to do something," I'm going to do something. I have done something, and we go, "I don't know. Are you sure? Can I test you out?" The natural response that we would expect God to have when he comes to us with his truth and with his grace and with his challenge and with his, and, with his, uh, and with his comfort to us, when we doubt all of that, the natural response we would expect is for God to annihilate us. But the wonderful grace of God is that God welcomes doubters. God welcomes skeptics. Jesus was the same way. Jesus, when he walked the earth, he was always engaging people with questions, always, be, always responding to their questions, always willing to have a dialogue about what it was he was telling to be true. God wasn't typically, Christ was not typically the one who would shut people's questions down. He was not one, nor, nor is God one, who, who says, believe it because I said it, and that ends it. No. God is willing to have a dialogue with our, with our strain. Up to a point up to a point, but he's willing to engage our apprehensions. He's willing to engage us at the place of our skepticism and to walk us through that process patiently. As a matter of the, in the earlier part of chapter 6, which we didn't get into, um, God initially calls him and he says, hey, uh, wait here. I'm going to go home and get, get a thing. Can you wait here? Because I want you to give me a sign and I'm going to go get some stuff and offer a sacrifice, but I need you to wait for me while I go home and get my stuff and come back. And God says, okay, I'll wait for you. God shows up. 
Gideon says, hey, I got to go home and get it. Get, so can you wait for me? God says, sure, I'll wait. Gideon says, hey, I, I, I have this request. Um, can we, can, I, I know you say you're going you're gonna to do this thing and save Israel through me. I, I know, and I believe you, but could you, could you do this thing with the fleece? Could you, you know, this, this piece of, this, this woolen um, absorbent uh, material, could, could, you, could you make it wet and everything dry around it? And then I'll, then I'll know, you know, because it's sort of unusual for that to happen. Everything else is dry, but it's wet. That's an, uh, that's an unusual thing. And so if you do that, then maybe I'll be willing. And God says, okay, I'll do, I'll do a little magic trick for you. And then he says, now don't, don't be angry with me. I understand what you did. I got a whole bowl full of water out of that. Great job. But could you, can we flip it upside down? Can you do the other thing? Can you keep, keep it dry and then everything else is wet? And God says, sure. Now, keep in mind, this is not the way to go about understanding what God wants you to do in your life. This is not describing a, God is not, God is not giving us a principle to follow here. He is simply describing what Gideon did. It's not what, what theologians say is it's not proscriptive, it's descriptive. He's simply describing what happened. He's not telling us this is how we should go about understanding what God is doing or what we should put our faith in. It, what Gideon is doing is mistrusting God's, God's voice. He's again, over and over and over again in this passage, showing more of his skepticism, not more of his faith. And mistrusting God is not, a, it's not a, an example to follow. But what we do see in this passage through him over and over again, not trusting, showing more of his skepticism, not trusting in what God's telling him. We're showing a patient God who's willing to answer all of our questions and be with us to the very end of the process. The other thing we notice about God's response to skepticism is that skepticism doesn't disqualify Gideon to do the job God's calling him to do. Everyone is skeptical. Everyone struggles with faith. Every story from the scriptures is a story where there is a lack of faith and a lack of understanding about what God's doing in their lives and in the lives of others throughout the pages of scripture. No one had perfect faith. No one in the pages of scripture has this sense of uh, impenetrable faith that was, that was uh, ironclad. And it's not that It's not that that faith disqualifies any of them. It's that God says, you're in process, and it isn't so much about the strength of your faith. It's the strength of the object of your faith. And I am the object of your faith. People say, if you believe strongly enough, anything you believe strongly enough, you can accomplish. And that's the furthest thing from biblical Christianity I can imagine. It isn't about the strength of God's faith of the faith of God's people. It's the strength of the object of the faith of God's people, who is God himself. It's his strength that's accomplishing. And that's why he can use faulty servants. He can use faulty vessels. He can use broken warriors who don't believe half of what they're being asked to do. They're in process. God uses people who, are, who doubt. God uses people who are skeptical. Why? Because here's the third response that we see from God to skeptics is not only is he patient, not only does he, he use them and that doesn't disqualify them, 
Thirdly, we, our faith grows more when we're playing the game than when we're sitting on the sideline. That when we are being used by God to do the work, when we are stepping forward in the, midst of our, in the midst of our skepticism, we acknowledge it to him, we acknowledge it to ourselves, we, try, we don't put on airs, I don't act as if I believe something that I don't, we, I, I tell that to God, but I step forward in the way that God calls me. Peter even, in Luke, I think it's in Luke 5, he was just meeting Jesus. And it tells us in that passage that, that Peter had just gotten back from an all-night fishing expedition. He, and he was, he, Peter was a, was a successful fisherman. He, was, he had a business with, with, with James and John. He and his brother, Andrew, had a successful partnership. And they, they had a lot. They, they were successful fishermen. They knew when and what to do. They weren't like, I mean, I'm an idiot fisherman. I don't know, where to, I don't know how to fish. I, the only time fishing I've ever done is when someone's taken me because they know how to do it, and they know to go under this, in this, in this cove, or they know to go, hey, we're going to meet at 5.30, or, you know, um, use this kind of bait. I don't know anything about this, but Peter knew. And it set, tells us in the passage that Peter had just gotten back from an all-night fishing trip and was mending his nets on the, on the shore. And Jesus says to him, Peter, let's go fishing. And Peter, it says in the text that Peter, Peter says, it doesn't make me, it doesn't make sense to me, Lord, that you're asking me because we have been out all night and we have caught nothing. Because this season, the fish run at night. They don't run during the day. And we haven't caught anything. And so we're a little discouraged. Seems like an unreasonable request. But here's what Peter said in the midst. He didn't say this whole sentence, but I'm going to paraphrase it. He said, in the midst of my doubt, in the midst of my skepticism, in the midst of this being an unreasonable request, I'm going to do it because you asked me to do it. It goes against everything in my emotions. I'm discouraged and, and afraid. It goes against everything that I know about fishing and my, sense of, uh, and my sense of expertise. It goes against everything that I'm doing. I'm just tired, and I just don't feel the ability. I've been out all night. I'm mending nets, and I want to go home and sleep. But, I'm gonna, but because you asked me, because you said, because you, because you said it, I will step ahead. And when, we, and when in our faith and skepticism, we step into the game from the sidelines, just like in Peter's life, Jesus took them out and he watched them catch an immense amount of fish, so much so that he had to call his partners to get the, the second boat out and come out to, 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 fill the net, to fill that boat. And it says that both boats were filled with so much fish that they began to sink. Now, if I was Peter, living in that day and age, making my living as a fisherman, my first thought would have been, if Jesus goes out with me every day, I am going to make a killing in Galilee. But it says that Peter in that, pa in that passage made this bipolar exp expression of, of love to him. And I say bipolar because here's what it was. The passage says that he fell around Jesus' feet and said, Go away from me, Lord. Go away from me. I'm a sinful man. Does that make logical sense to you? That's why I say it's bipolar. Is that he grabs Jesus around the feet, around the ankles, and says, go away, Lord, go away. But at the same time, he wants him to be close. Come near, don't go away. 
Because when, G, when Peter was faced with this reality, in the midst of his skepticism, he got to see God do something amazing that overwhelmed him with a sense of God's grace and with a sense of God's power and with a sense of what God can do in this world when he played the game rather than waiting for his doubts to go away while sitting on the sidelines. Same thing with Gideon. God says, I've got a job for you. I want you in the game. I'm going to take you. I'm going to take you and 300 of your friends down here, and you're going to you're going to annihilate the Midianites, and you're going to know something about me that's going to lead you to worship, that's going to lead you to trust, that's going to lead you to overwhelming your skepticism, that's going to lead you to a sense of being willing to take risk for me, that's going to lead you to become the judge and the ruler of Israel that I have in store for you. And the same thing is true for us today. When God says, I have something for you, there's something I want you to know about me, I'm going to draw you into the game, and we're going to go out into deep water, into the deep water where, the, where I know where the fish are, and you don't think it's reasonable, but if you do, if you, if you trust in my word rather than in your own sense of yourself, your own sense of circumstances, your own sense of who you think I am, I'm going to show you something that's going to lead you to in, that, in, in one moment be overwhelmed of your desire, your magnetic attraction to me, while also your overwhelming sense that you have no business being in my presence because of how wonderfully gracious and wonderfully powerful I am. That was Peter's response. He says, there's something about me that makes me think I shouldn't be here and that you really should run from me because I am a mess. But oh, dear God, please don't leave me. There's something about what you've shown me by your grace that I just need in my life and I have to have. That's the experience of grace. That's the experience of skepticism. Because God is not put off by it. He uses us and he leads us to a greater sense of faith in him when we step into the game. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. I pray that you would lead us to a greater sense of ourselves, more accurate, a greater, a greater, more accurate understanding of you and of, and of our circumstances so that our faith might grow. Use us, Father. Use us and take us into the deep water of that, of that plan for our lives that we might see you better, understand you and trust you more, be overwhelmed by you and be captivated by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.